The following message is copyrighted by Westminster Theological Seminary. Duplication, distribution, or other use of all or any part of this message is not permitted without prior written consent. Please direct your inquiries to communications at wts.edu. For all other information, please visit the main website at www.wts.edu. The question of prophecy in the Old Testament is extremely important. And today, prophecy that is predictive in nature is very often denied. To maintain that a prophet could speak of something that would obtain late, would come to pass later on is to hold, so we are told, to a mechanistic view of the universe, namely that everything has been determined in advance. And that is one reason why genuinely predictive prophecy is often denied these days. Nevertheless, when we read the scriptures, we find that they do contain prophecies which purport to have been fulfilled at a later time. Predictive prophecy, or the predictive element in prophecy, is rather prominent in the Old Testament. Our understanding of prophecy, as our understanding of everything else, depends, of course, upon our view of God, our view of Christianity. If we have accepted one or more forms of modern philosophy or theology, in which God is really brought down to be a part of his creation, then it's an open question as to whether there could be such a thing as predictive prophecy or not. Really, there could not be. If, on the other hand, we do believe in the triune God of the scriptures, the God who is all-powerful, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, then we realize that he could well enough make known his ways unto men, that he could give special revelation that he could plant a prophecy in the heart of a prophet and that the fulfillment of that prophecy could be accomplished by God at some later period at his desire. I think that the whole question of the authority of the Bible shines forth very clearly in this connection, namely, what is the nature of prophecy? And the Bible is authoritative if it gives us prophecies that are fulfilled later on. If there is no predictive prophecy, we may very well question the authority of the scriptures. Now, the prophecy upon which I wish to speak this afternoon is one of the more significant of the predictive prophecies, the one that we commonly call the Emmanuel prophecy, the one that is found in Isaiah 7:14, where we read, Behold, the virgin is with child and will bring forth a son and call his name Emmanuel. <coughs> now, This prophecy, as you know, has been discussed a great deal. Its meaning has been disputed, and a number of views concerning its interpretation have been presented. For one thing, there is question as to just uh, who the prophet is talking about and whether the translation virgin, as I rendered it, is correct. The Revised Standard Version of the Old Testament substitutes the words young woman. Behold, a young woman is with child. And that is quite different from saying, Behold, a virgin is with child. Now, uh, I want to not merely confine my remarks to this prophecy, but I want to say something about the background that called forth its utterance. It was a time when Ahaz, the son of David, the Davidic ruler, was upon the throne, and he was troubled. Ahaz was troubled because the northern kings, that is, the king of Israel and the king of Syria, or Ephraim in Syria, as the scripture speaks of it here, their kings, Pekah, the son of Remaliah, and Rezin of Damascus, had formed an alliance whose avowed intent was to come down and take Ahaz from the throne. Now, what was the reason for that? The reason seems to have been that at this time there was a greater enemy upon the scene of history, namely the Assyrian power. Assyria, of course, is to the east in Mesopotamia, and during these days Assyria was rising in prominence. Under Tiglath-Pileser III, the Assyrian kingdom was spreading its borders. 
conquering many other countries and including them within its own confines, uh, taking the people from their own homes and scattering them throughout the country uh, in a dispersion, a very clever political move because thereby they were able to prevent uprisings when people are scattered from their own kind and separated, they're less likely to be able to band together for revolutionary purposes than if they were all placed together. And this was the policy that was followed by Tiglath Pileser III. Now he had, when he usurped the throne, for he was a usurper, he had first gone down to Babylon, then he had turned his attention to the northeast, then he had gone west to Syria. And at the time in which our prophecy is uttered, he was actually in Palestine. He had come down the Palestinian coast and was as far as Lachish, which is not very far southwest of Jerusalem, <coughs> possibly some 30 miles, not very far. And you see, he constituted a threat. Now, I suppose his desire was to go down into Egypt. There had always been hostility between Egypt and the Mesopotamian powers, and you can see that Palestine was a kind of a buffer state. Evidently what the kings wanted, that is the king of Israel and the king of Syria, was that Ahaz would join with them so that the three of them together could form a bulwark against the Assyrian king. If these three were united, they would be, uh, constitute stronger opposition to the Assyrian king than if they were simply scattered. Now for some reason Ahaz would have none of that. He was unwilling to get into any such alliance. And it seems from the book of Chronicles as though the kings had already taken Ahaz from his capital city and brought him as far as Samaria, where a prophet named Oded had remonstrated with them and told them to set him free. They took him down to Jericho, which is down in the Jordan Valley, and there they turned him loose, and more or less in humiliation he had to walk to Jerusalem. Now that uh, walk is a good stiff climb upwards from the Dead Sea Valley to Jerusalem, and I imagine that the king came somewhat in humiliation back to Jerusalem. At this time also, according to Chronicles, some 200,000 men were taken away from Judah. It would seem now that as our prophecy opens, word is brought back to Ahaz that Syria is resting upon Ephraim, that is, she has not returned all the way home, but is simply encamped upon in Ephraim, Ephraim's territory, uh, waiting, as it were, to recoup her strength so that the two of them could come back and depose Ahaz. This is their avowed, their announced intention. They intend to harass Jerusalem, if you see verse 6, and they intend to depose Ahaz and to place on the throne a man who is described there as the son of Tabiel. Now, in all probability, this son of Tabiel was a Judean prince who was more or less sympathetic with their own policies. And if they could place him upon the throne in the stead of Ahaz, then they would have a strong threefold or three-nation alliance, you might say, which could withstand the pressure of Assyria. And when Ahaz heard this news, Isaiah tells us in very picturesque language that his heart trembled and the heart of his people as the trembling or the swaying of the trees of the forest before the wind. So our account begins with Ahaz afraid. Ahaz, the son of David, upon the throne is afraid that he will be deposed. And now we must always remember in the Old Testament that it was God's purpose to fulfill the promises that had been made to Abraham. And God was not going to allow the Assyrians or anybody else to preclude the fulfillment of those promises. Ahaz, had he been a true believer, would have realized this fact. He would have realized that he could not have been destroyed. The Davidic throne would last and the promises would finally be fulfilled. <coughs> Ahaz, however, was troubled. He was not a believer. He was not what a son of David should have been. He feared that the two northern kings, 
did have the power to come down and to remove him from the throne. That is the setting then against which our prophecy is uttered. That is the background, the situation in which we find ourselves as we begin to read this seventh chapter of Isaiah. Now God sends Isaiah to the, to the king, and we are told precisely where the king was. At the ascent of the upper field, the field of the fullers, or the upper way of the field of the fullers, the precise identification of this may be difficult to determine. But it was a place where there was a pool, an upper pool, a pool of water. It may be the pool that is remains today outside the Jaffa Gate at Jerusalem, and that the lower pool is the so-called pool of Hezekiah, which is inside the present city wall. I don't know whether that is the correct identification or not. It is difficult to say. At any rate, it would seem that Ahaz had gone outside the city, that he was there at this upper pool. Now, what he was doing there, we really don't know, but almost all the commentators seem to think he was inspecting the water situation in Jerusalem. The lack of water has always been a problem in the city of Jerusalem. Later on, Hezekiah did something about it. Hezekiah dug a tunnel in which he was able to bring water within the city of Jerusalem. And if you go to Jerusalem today, the one thing you want to be sure to do is to go through that tunnel of Hezekiah. I don't doubt but what it is, the tunnel that Hezekiah dug. It is a remarkable feat of engineering because the engineers or the, the diggers began at the two ends. The tunnel is some 1,500 feet in length and they dug under the ground, and they met about halfway. Now, what is remarkable is that there are curves in that tunnel. How did they ever know to meet? But they left a six-line inscription, which now, as far as I know, is in the museum in Istanbul, and this six-line inscription says that the workers on the one side could hear the pickaxes of the workers on the other side as they were approaching. And so they did approach. The tunnel is carved out of the solid rock in a very beautiful way. In some places it is rather tall, maybe 15 feet or so. In a few places you have to stoop over. Generally, I would say that the tunnel is about so wide, and when I went through it there was a stream of water flowing through it. It was the coolest place in all of Jerusalem. I went through it in summertime. There, I guess, is no real doubt but that Hezekiah himself did dig this tunnel. That is, that he had it dug. It's a remarkable feat of engineering, and anybody who goes to Jerusalem wants to be sure to see this tunnel. My only advice is don't go through it alone. <coughs> Make sure that you have plenty of people with you because some of the Arabs over there have the habit of trying to get all the money that they can away from you. So be sure you go through with a number of other people. But it is very worthwhile seeing. Hezekiah, at least, did something about the water situation in Jerusalem. Even today, the lack of water constitutes quite a serious problem on the Arab side of Jerusalem. And uh, the water today comes from what are called Solomon's Pools that are south of Bethlehem. But the rainfall is not very great in Jerusalem, as we know. There are the former and the latter rains, and then there are the long summer months in which there is practically no rain at all. So water has always been a problem. And Ahaz evidently realized that if the enemy could stop off the water supply, they would then have the city. And in all probability, he was there examining the water supply to see just how long Jerusalem could hold out in a siege. Here he was then, and Isaiah comes right to him. Now, at this point, we can see a rather interesting confirmation of the scripture. A prophet goes right into the presence of a king. And that might seem a strange thing. Uh, you and I, if we want to see men in official position, have to go through all kinds of red tape, and even then it's not sure that we're going to see them. But here Isaiah goes right into the very presence of the king and speaks to him. 
It was the custom in ancient times, as is now known from many inscriptions, as was all along known from Homer's Iliad, that a soothsayer or a prophet could have access to the very presence of the king. Isaiah goes right to Ahaz then, and he preaches to him. He takes with him a son who bore a symbolical name, Sha'er Yashub, which means a remnant, it will return. And the emphasis in that name is on the remnant, so that the very presence of the son is a reminder that there will be a remnant, that the house of David will not be destroyed, and that the king has nothing to fear. Then Isaiah speaks to him and tells him that his heart should be quiet. He should not be in this abject fear in which he finds himself, and Isaiah gives a reason for that. These two enemy kings, he says, are like the smoking tails of firebrands. That is, the wood on which meat was roasted in the fire has become so burned out, so charred, that it is no stronger than the mere ends of the wood, the tails, that are still smoking. It would have no power. It could do nothing anymore. Its use is done for. And this is but a symbolical way of stating that you, Ahaz, have nothing to fear from these two northern kings. They cannot hurt you. Their power is played out. Now that is a direct revelation from God and we would expect that Ahaz, if he were a believer, would have listened to that revelation and would have acted thereon. But Isaiah goes on to enlarge upon this, and he points out that the situation will continue just as it is. And that is the meaning of these rather cryptic statements, for the head of Damascus is resin and so on. And what he means is, that is the way things are now, and that is the way things are going to continue. Syria and Israel will continue just as they are without the addition of Judah. And his language is almost depreciatory. He does not even mention the king of Israel by name, but simply speaks of him as the son of Remaliah. So he gives to Ahaz the direct statement that there is nothing to fear. The situation will continue just as it is. <coughs> now... He turns to Ahaz and says, If you do not believe, it is because you are not established, by, which is a difficult phrase, but I think means something like this. If you do not believe, it is because you yourself are not firm and cannot believe. Now Ahaz refuses to believe the message that God has given to him. And Isaiah says, ask for thyself a sign. That is, ask for your own good, for your own benefit, a sign from the Lord. Make high the request, or make it deep, or as one way of reading it is, make it to Sheol. That would seem to suggest that if there were any doubt in the mind of Ahaz, he might ask for any sign that he wanted. And we think of something striking and unusual, such as the recession of the shadow upon the sundial. Had the king asked that the sun be darkened, or that the earth open up, or something of that effect, I think it would have been granted to him. In other words, God is giving to the, ki giving to the king here not merely a direct statement as to what will happen, but he is also permitting the king to ask for any sign of his own choice to confirm what the message was, to confirm the message. But Ahaz replies, I will not ask, neither will I tempt the Lord. <clears throat> now this is not only a direct refusal to obey God, but it is also a hypocritical refusal. What Ahaz does here is to reflect upon the scripture and thus to make his refusal sound like something pious. The Bible says, Ye shall not tempt the Lord as ye tempted him in Massa, in Deuteronomy 12. And so Ahaz says, I will not tempt the Lord. He cloaks his refusal, you see, in a mask of pretended piety 
so that it would appear that he is doing something that is good. I will not ask. It is a definite, deliberate refusal to obey the command of God. Now, I think that Ahaz was one of these so-called practical men who are too busy for the Lord God. He is one of these men who is busy solving the world's problems with human wisdom. He is one of these men who would say that Christianity is all right for children and for older people, but not for those of us who are so busy with the world's problems that we haven't any time for that. And I rather think that's the kind of person that Ahaz was. But he knew enough of Scripture to be hypocritical about it, and so he defends his refusal, as it were, by sounding pious, by appealing to the Scripture. I will not tempt the Lord. What he is doing is calling the command of God through the prophet a tempting of the Lord. Now, the wickedness of that, of course, becomes apparent. When God gives us a command, we are to obey that command. And we have no right to evade responsibility by making it appear that we are doing a pious thing. The devil always quotes scripture for his purpose. And that is exactly what is taking place here. And so Isaiah turns upon Ahaz and he speaks to him in rather strong terms. He says, is it not enough for you that you weary men that now you are wearying my God? And that is the foundation and background for the prophecy that he gives. Therefore, he says, and to paraphrase that, therefore, inasmuch as you have refused to ask for a sign and to obey the command of God, therefore the Lord, he will give to you a sign. Now, there are a number of words in this verse that are very significant. First of all, Isaiah says, therefore the Lord. Now, in Hebrew, there are several different words which are translated Lord in English. This word that is used here is not the covenant name of God. It is not the word that is often translated Jehovah. It is not the so-called tetragrammaton. It is a different word which we may pronounce Adonai, and which literally means my masters. It's a plural. It's an intensive plural, and it is generally rendered the sovereign one or the mighty one, the master. It is a word that Isaiah uses frequently in order to stress the power of God. It is the Lord Adonai that God, that Isaiah sees seated upon the throne high and lifted up. So the matter is taken out of Ahaz's hands, and it is the Lord of power who gives the sign. Furthermore, the Lord, he gives the sign to you, and now the plural form is used. Notice that in verse 11, the prophet had said, ask for thyself a sign. Now he says, the Lord will give to you a sign. Uh, I realize that there are those who believe that they are simplifying the Bible if they use you all the time. And there are people who pray to God as you uh, uh, today. You see, our English language does not really have a singular of the second person pronoun. Oh, we have it, thou and thee and so on, but we don't use it daily. Uh, the Quakers, I understand, do use it, but most of us don't use that. And we're a little troubled by it. But nearly every language apart from English has this distinction in number of the second person pronoun. And you have it both in the Hebrew and in the Greek. And the original languages, the Hebrew and the Greek, always use the second person pronoun singular when addressing God. Now, in the Bible, this is a rather important distinction and a lot is lost when we obliterate this distinction. I don't think it's too difficult for us to learn to address God in the second person singular, and I think we're far more biblical if we do that. And simply because men have overlooked that, they have overlooked what is stated here so plainly. In the first place, <coughs> Isaiah said to Ahaz, ask for thyself a sign. That means a sign that is for thine own individual benefit, for thy benefit alone. But Ahaz refuses to do that, 
And now he says, the Lord, he will give to you, and it is a plural, a sign. The sign is given, you see, not merely to Ahaz, but to all about. And this very fact shows us that Ahaz has forfeited his right to a sign. Now there are those who say that the messianic interpretation of this prophecy wouldn't mean anything to Ahaz, that it wouldn't be a sign to Ahaz. Well, who says that the sign is for Ahaz? The Bible doesn't. The Bible uses the plural here. Ahaz has had his opportunity. He has forfeited that opportunity. Now the Lord gives this sign to those that are round about, to all who will hear. It is not a sign addressed specifically to Ahaz. And I think if we keep that in mind, we will realize that whether Ahaz understands what follows or not, the sign is of God's choosing and was not intended for Ahaz specifically. But I'd like to say this further. It's a wrong assumption that a man must understand God's promises thoroughly in order to be held responsible. You know, when you and I stand in the pulpit to preach the gospel, there are people before us who do not understand the gospel. Does that absolve them of responsibility? Well, of course it doesn't. We know that the Spirit of God sometimes uses the preaching in order to harden men in their sins. That doesn't absolve anyone from responsibility. The responsibility is to believe the gospel. And if men don't believe the gospel, they're not absolved of responsibility. The unbeliever does not understand the gospel, not at all. Not until the Spirit of God opens the eyes of his understanding will he know what the gospel is all about. And Ahaz did not understand this prophecy, and no unbeliever has understood it or can understand it. But that doesn't absolve a man from responsibility at all. I know there's mystery here, the mystery of human responsibility and divine sovereignty, but that is in the Scriptures. And we can't just say, well, if a man doesn't understand the things of God, he won't be held responsible because the Bible teaches the contrary. It's quite possible that Ahaz did not know what Isaiah was talking about. I don't think he was concerned. There's one part of the prophecy, however, that he understood well enough, a part that is omitted a great deal in discussions today. And that is in the 17th verse where Isaiah tells him that he's going to get the very thing that he asked for, namely the king of Assyria. And he understood that well enough. Sometimes God punishes us by answering our prayers in the way that we want them answered. When we pray for something that is not what we should have, and God gives us that, it may be by way of punishment. And that part of it Ahaz could well understand. But Ahaz must listen whether he understands or not. The sign is given by the Lord. It is not a sign that Ahaz chooses. It is a sign that the Lord chooses. Just as the gospel is given to us by God, we don't devise it. It's given to us, and our responsibility is to believe it. And what is it that the prophet says? He says, behold, and that word directs our attention to something unusual. In the prophecy of Isaiah, whenever you read this word, behold, you realize that something startling, something unique is to be presented. Behold, my servant shall deal prudently. Thus the great servant passage is introduced. Behold, the word suggests that we stop, that we pause, that we reflect and consider upon what is to be spoken. And then the very next word, ha'alma, the virgin. I will translate it that way for the moment. That is the object that we are to regard. Behold, that prepares us, the virgin, ha-alma. Our thoughts are to be directed to the alma, above all else. And then we are told something about her. Is with child and about to bring forth a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. 
Now, the meaning of this word alma has been disputed, and the meaning of almost every word in, in this verse has been disputed. Years ago, in the second century of our era, Justin Martyr was trying to defend the deity of Christ against his Jewish opponent Trifo. And Trifo, in his response, almost seemed to anticipate modern higher criticism. Trifo said, first, that the word alma did not mean virgin. It should not be rendered by the Greek word parthenos, as it is in the Greek translation of Isaiah. It should be rendered by the Greek word neonis, which simply means a young woman. In other words, Trifo said this word means young woman and not virgin. Secondly, Trifo said that there were stories of virgin births among the Greeks, so that there would be, the implication would be, there's nothing unusual in a virgin birth here if that is intended. Then in the third place, Trifo said, <clears throat> the prophet is not talking about the Messiah at all, he is talking about Hezekiah. Hezekiah was the son of Ahaz, the next king to reign upon the throne of Judah. Very well, in thus speaking, Trifo was anticipating modern criticism. Now there are three points that must be considered in any discussion of this passage. In the first place, the meaning of the word alma. Secondly, the fact that a sign is given. And thirdly, the meaning of the uh, phrase Immanuel, with us is God. And I want to consider those, but I'm not going to consider them in that order. First of all, I want to consider the fact that the prophecy is a sign. Now, we have just been told that God had offered to Ahaz a sign. And that sign could have been anything that Ahaz wanted. Make high thy request, make it deep to Sheol. Anything that Ahaz had wanted might have been a sign. And so we expect that the birth which is announced will be a sign of an unusual kind. That is what the context leads us to expect. Now I know that a sign need not necessarily be a miracle. For example, this shall be the sign unto you. Ye shall find the babe wrapped in swaddling clothes lying in a manger. Or the first occurrence, this shall be a sign unto you. Ye shall worship God upon this mountain. The sign need not necessarily be a miracle. But the word suggests something unusual, something out of the ordinary, something that it does not happen in the daily course of life. It is something that stands out to attest the fact that God has fulfilled his promise. And that, it seems to me, rules out the idea that this is an ordinary birth, that any child that is born might be the sign. The sign, then, is something that is significant, that stands out. And I think we must remember that. It is an unusual birth to which the reference is made here. In the second place, then, we must do justice to the words Immanuel, with us is God. <coughs> now, the higher critics to a man seem to adopt the following view. They say that this phrase means that a child will be born in Isaiah's day and that birth is the sign that in a very short time there will be nothing more to fear from the two northern kings. You see, Isaiah goes on to use rather strange language. He says that when the child knows to reject the evil and choose uh, butter and honey shall he eat till he knows to reject the evil and choose the good. For before the child knows to reject the evil and choose the good, the land which thou abhorrest shall be forsaken of its two kings. And so the critics say that the order of events is this, a child will be born, and this child is the sign that by the time it has reached the age where it knows to reject evil and choose good, there will be nothing more to be afraid of from these two northern kings. Now, how long a time is it from the time of birth until a child knows to reject the evil and choose the good? Well, different estimates have been given, but... Certainly, it's not a very long time before a child knows what is evil and what is good and shows that it has evil and evil tendencies and manifests the fact that it is a fallen creature. 
We know that even little children at a very early age will choose the evil and show very clearly. They can get temper tantrums at a very early age. But perhaps this refers more to a conscious choosing of evil and rejection of good. Even so, the child is not very old when that happens. So the critical argument is something like this. A child will be born, and this child is the symbol that, in a few years, let us say, there will be nothing more to fear from the two northern kings. That is the way that it is uh, stated. And then the child is to be called God is with us, because in a few years God will be with us when this deliverance occurs. Now, do I make that point clear? That I, it's difficult to state, but that is the way the critics look at it. Now that, it seems to me, involves a great deal of difficulty. One commentary says that just as in the French Revolution when women named their childs with names such as Liberté, Fraternité, Egalité, and so on, so women would be naming their children Immanuel in the hope that their child was the sign that in a short time there'd be nothing more to fear. But that doesn't really fit the requirements, does it? How can we be sure that this is a sign, this particular child? And that faces us, you see, with the difficulty here. How can you be sure that any child born in Isaiah's day is the sign that in a few years God will be present with his people? How, what right does any mother have to call her child Emmanuel and be sure that her child is the sign that this deliverance is going to happen, that God will then be present with his people. Well, they say the child is Hezekiah. But does the wife of Ahaz have the right to say, my son Hezekiah, a prince, is God with us because he is the sign that in a few years God will be with us? There's only one thing, you see, that is required. And that is, there must be further specific divine revelation that this particular child is the child that is the sign. And that's the very thing the critics don't want to admit. They make it all a matter of guesswork. That the mother names her child, and it must have been that child, and the birth of this child symbolizes the fact that in a few years God will be with us. But don't you see what's involved there? A mother is taking a great deal upon herself to say, my child is the sign unless there is specific divine revelation to that effect. And that is the weakness in this view. I don't think that's what this prophecy means. I don't think it means to say that a child will be born and this particular child is the sign that in a few years God will be with his people. Not at all. Now, God is with his people, of course, in every act of deliverance. But I think this misunderstands the nature of the word Immanuel. That phrase has a kind of a climax in it. With us is God. And the word ale that is used there is never used of a man. The Hebrew word Elohim may sometimes be used of men, but never the word ale. With us is God. And what it means is that God is present with his people, not in this deliverance from Syria and Israel, he is of course present then, but he is present with his people in a unique sense in the birth of the child. It is the birth of the child that brings God to his people. And that is the point that most critics overlook. That is the significance of the birth. The child brings God to his people. Now, how can you say that about Hezekiah? Well, I suppose in the birth of every child, in a certain sense, God is brought to us. The birth of a child is a very wonderful thing. But this is unique. And how can you say that the birth of Hezekiah, in particular, brought God to his people? Now, just think about that for a minute. How can you apply that to any ordinary human child? That that birth brought God to his people. And so we have to pay consideration, do, do consideration to this designation, Emmanuel. This child is Emmanuel. 
God comes to his people in the birth of this child in a sense that is not true of the birth of any other child. So that the very name shows this is a unique birth. It is not merely the birth of any child whatsoever. It is the birth of this particular child. Now that that is what is meant is shown by the way in which Isaiah himself develops this. In the ninth chapter, he goes on to speak again of the birth of the child. And he names that child. And one of the names that he gives to that child is is El Gibor, Mighty God. The child bears this same designation, Ale, in the ninth chapter that is given in the seventh chapter. And so we can see that this is what Isaiah had in mind. It is God that is present with his people. Now this brings us then to the consideration that there is really only one child of whom this can be said, and that is Jesus Christ. Now some have said, if what you say is true, then there must be two virgin births. There must have been a virgin birth back in the time of, Christ, of, of Isaiah. No, not necessarily so. Uh, is there a proximate fulfillment of this prophecy? Well, if you can find anyone to whom this designation Emmanuel applies and whose birth was truly a sign and whose mother could genuinely be called an Alma, very well, then you can have a proximate reference. But I don't think you can find any such person. And so I feel that the only fulfillment of this prophecy is in the birth of Jesus Christ himself. Now let us look at the designation of the mother, the Alma. The definite article is used here, and I don't think we should mean to make too much of that. The virgin, it may be simply generic, I'm inclined to think that it is, and that what Isaiah is saying is that the mother is not any woman, it is not a young woman, it is not a married woman, It is not a betrothed woman necessarily. It is not an old woman. It is a Alma, an Alma. I think that is the reason that the article is used there. It is generic to show that the mother is an Alma. And I think that is really stronger than to say it is the virgin. The article, I would say, is used generically there. But what is the meaning of Alma? Well... Ever since the time of Trifo, there have been those who say that the word means a young woman. And the Jews have maintained right along, it finds a classical expression in David Kimke's commentary, that the word Alma may refer to any young woman of marriageable age. She may be married, she may not be married, she may be either morally good or morally evil. Now, that isn't the precise quotation, but that's about what David Kimke says. That view was not held in the Christian church. Martin Luther, for example, and I mention this because a few years ago we were being told that new discoveries showed us that the word young woman was the correct way to translate this. By the way, there are no such new discoveries. The Dead Sea Scroll of Isaiah doesn't throw any new light on this at all. There are no new discoveries that tell us that this should be translated young woman. And I think it was a disgraceful thing that the magazines allowed any such idea ever to get across. I remember seeing a religious pamphlet once in which some lady who was high in Methodist circles in the United States expressed her gratitude to God that there were now new discoveries which showed that this word should be translated young woman. Whoever was responsible for letting a thing like that get out, I think, just did a plainly dishonest thing. There are no new discoveries that throw any light whatsoever upon this word. Martin Luther said that if anybody would show him that this word Alma ever referred to a married woman, he would give him a hundred guldens. And then in characteristic fashion, Luther went on to say that the Lord alone knew where he'd get them. Well, it was a very safe offer. Nobody's ever collected them and nobody's ever going to collect them. The word is used only a few times in the Old Testament. And in all those occurrences, there is no occurrence where it refers to a married woman. It is used of Rebecca, and she is also said to be a Bethula, a virgin, and a man had not known her. She is also called by this term Alma. It is used of Miriam, the sister of Moses, when she is still a little girl, 
and finds Moses and runs to call his mother. It is used in a few other instances. The one passage which might conceivably be called in question is in Proverbs 30, where it speaks of the way of a man towards an alma. Whether that is to be taken in a good sense or an evil sense is difficult to determine, for the conclusion is, so is the way of an adulterous woman. She eats, she wipes her mouth and says, I have done no evil. But certainly, even in that context, it does not show that the alma is a married woman. More likely, it refers to the mystery of human affection, the way of a man toward a maid. Now, in recent years, there have been discoveries made on the coast of Syria at Rashamra, and a number of clay tablets have come to light which contain mythological poems. On these tablets, this word Alma is used. May I just sum up the evidence by saying that I have gone through all of this material and never is the word Alma used of a married woman. There is one passage that refers to the, to the marriage of gods and it is couched in language very similar to that of Isaiah. Behold, the Alma will bear a son. This is before the marriage occurs. After the marriage, when the Alma becomes a married woman, a different word is used to designate her. I think we may safely say that the word Alma is never used of a married woman. Now we are uh, told, or the challenge is thrown out to us, that if Isaiah had wanted to speak about a virgin birth, he would have used another word, Bethula. Bethula, we are told, always means a virgin, and the fact that Isaiah did not use that word means he wasn't concer concerned about a virgin birth. Well, let's see if that's so. <clears throat> the word Bethulah may mean a virgin. That is true. Uh, you find it used, as I said, of Rebekah. And there is added the phrase, and a man had not known her. Yes, it may be used of a virgin. But the word is also used of a betrothed virgin. And the betrothed virgin stood in a relationship to a man that was just about the same as marriage. In Deuteronomy 22, the penalty for faithlessness on the part of a betrothed virgin is the same as the penalty for faithlessness or for adultery. It is stoning. Now, in the New Testament, Mary, you see, is betrothed to Joseph. But notice, she is said to be his wife and he is said to be her husband. And this look into the customs of the time shows us that Joseph really was a just man. Joseph had the right to require the stoning of Mary, for he felt that she had been faithless to him, or he might have felt that way. But he was a just man, and he did not want to make an example of her. I think we sometimes overlook what a wonderful thing Joseph did at this time. The word Bethula then may refer to a betrothed virgin. And she is said even in Deuteronomy to be the wife of the man and he is said to be her husband. But more than that, the word Bethula may refer to a married woman. In Joel 1.8 we read, Lament as the lamentation of a virgin girded in sackcloth over the husband of her youth. And the word used for husband here, Baal, shows that it is the married husband. It is a different word from the word used for husband in the in betrothed state. Now, later Hebrew and Aramaic usage shows that this is actually the way the word was used. In an Aramaic incantation bowl of a later time, the second century before Christ, when the wife, and the word wife is used, has no child and wants a child, she recites this incantation. She is described as a Bethula, a married woman. I understand that this word among the Shiite uh, Arabs is used for the married wife. And I have been told by an Arab himself that the daughter of Muhammad, Fatima, is described by this term, Bethula, the equivalent Arabic term, although she was a married woman. 
If then Isaiah had used the term Bethulah, it would have been too confusing. We wouldn't have known what he meant. So we can see why he did not use that term. Now, we have to hurry. I simply want to say this. If Isaiah had wanted to use the term young woman, there is a perfectly good Hebrew word, and that is the word na'arah. Why didn't Isaiah use that word if that's what he wanted to say? And I've never yet seen a critic that has come to grips with that question. There are several available words that he might have used. He might have said kalah, that means a bride. And then there would be nothing unusual in this promise. He might have said yalda, that usually means just a little girl. He might have said na'ara, and that would have meant a young woman. He might have said bethulah, and then we never would have known just what he did mean. Why does he use the one word which is never used of a married woman, the word alma? Now that word is not the precise equivalent of our English word virgin. That is true, or German Jungfrau. That is true. But this word is never used of a married woman. What does that mean? It would seem to follow either that the birth was a birth out of wedlock, or I should rather say that it was an immoral birth, the woman was immoral, and can you for a minute think that that is what Isaiah is saying when he is prophesying salvation for his people, when he is speaking of the messianic king, can you think that that is what he means, or it suggests that the birth is a supernatural birth, and that fits in well with the context. I suppose that the precise English equivalent would be something more like maid or damsel. But even those words, conceivably in English, might be used of a married woman. The word alma in Hebrew may not be used of a married woman. And for that reason, I think the best translation still is virgin. Isaiah is speaking of a supernatural birth. And to sum up the whole thing, in this time when it would seem as though the northern kings can destroy the promises of God and take Ahaz from the throne, and when the great temptation was to call in the help of Assyria, the nation that ultimately desired the destruction of Judah, then Isaiah brings to the fore the promise that there will be a king. The first thing he says about that king is that he has a supernatural birth. She will bring forth a son, and that son is mentioned again. A child is born to us. A son is given to us. And as we read in Luke, unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, which is Christ the Lord. Isaiah is not speaking of any mere human being living at his time. Hezekiah, by the way, was already born. He is not speaking of some mere sinful prince who might sit upon the throne of David. He is placing in opposition to the king of the world empire, the Messiah, who would perform truly royal functions, who would be born in a supernatural fashion, that the believers in Judah in that day might place their hope in this particular promise.